watchers in the fourth dimension. That improves our chances. I'll have a pint. A pint of what? Ginger beer. He's a surgeon. Genius. Look what he did for me. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And is that finger loaded? This episode, we're heading back to Earth. Or are we? Regardless, it's time for the android invasion. But first, Julie's going to take a quick look at the mail. Over to you, Julie. All right. We do have one kind of leftover from our season 12 retrospective. Our friend Nathan Law says, I enjoyed this one and the results were in line with the ratings for the season. I agree with Don here that Genesis is the standout, but I definitely understand the appreciation for the arc in space. I love that. I generally dislike the doctor's speech from that serial simply because I hate the idea that the human race is in any way special. And it's one of those science fiction tropes that I kind of find annoying. But otherwise, it is really good yarn. Eh. I like it mainly because since we know the doctor spends all of his time with humans, it makes sense why he thinks they're special. Also, it's written by humans and we do that. Yeah, we kind of have main character energy as a species. <laughs> Moving over to Terror of the Zygons. From our friend R.L. Gray. So when I was a kid in the 70s, I was obsessed with the Loch Ness Monster and couldn't have been more excited to see it intersect with what was already one of my favorite TV shows. Fortunately, given the dodgy realization of this garrison, I also fell in love with the Zygons and their organic technology, so much so that as an 80s teenager, I wrote a fanfic with them merging with the Daleks for reasons. Oh, boy. <laughs> that makes me so happy. But that was really a setup for the ending in which I had the Dr. Quip, let Zygons be Zygons. Great oh. minds, Riley. Ha ha ha. All right. And from our friend Jam Casey, you guys have made me really want to watch this one. It's been at least a couple of decades, I realized. Decades. Wow. Maybe the silliness really does come from, in part, a desire to slightly undermine the Pertwee tropes, but it could also be more of that Robert Banks Stewart thing. The Avengers is very silly, especially the longer it goes on. Mind you, like this one, it's silly in a charming way that you just kind of get to love. I only started watching The Avengers in 2013, and it's difficult to explain what makes it so great. It's so very formulaic, but the formula is so much fun. And part of the pleasure is seeing how they sneakily subvert the formula in some of the episodes. Also, Emma Peel is, of course, just amazing. One of these days, I will watch The Avengers, I promise. And I will say yes to all of that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now from Nicholas Rutherford. Not surprised with your high score, the best baker so far, the start of a new golden age for the show. We will discuss that at a later date. <laughs> <laughs> Julie has strong feelings. Now we're going to hear from Nathan Laws again. Great review on this one. I don't rank it as highly as you do. I still prefer Ark in Space and Genesis of the Daleks, but it is one of the greats in a really neat window into what a Hinchcliffe Holmes unit era would be like. Unfortunately, although unit may feature from here on, the story marks the end of the unit era in a very fundamental way. With all of you rating this one so high, I'm interested to see how you'll rate the actual greatest stories in the Hinchcliffe Holmes run when you get to them. I'm sorry, everyone, you might get disappointed. Our friend Mark Dunstan says, Great story with excellent cliffhangers. Agree. Always remember this as an opposite Space 1999. Who is much better in storytelling, even though it could not beat Space 1999 and the look of the show? 
Episode 2 is very memorable to me as our family television broke down, having no synchronized picture, but sound was still okay. <laughs> oh. Also, I cannot comment on the Space 1999. That is one that I'm not sure I'm going to watch. I've been watching my way through it, and it looks great. I'll give it that. <laughs> our friend Kieran James Evans says, Can I give it a 10? Maybe not, but certainly a 9.5. Out of 10, pitchfork-wielding alien doppelgangers. <laughs> nice. That's a good metric. I suspect my like for Harry probably stems from this being one of the first three VHS tapes, Revenge of the Cyberman, this, and the season 15 opener. Thus, he didn't come across as bad as some have found him. The music is god-tier. Agreed. God-tier. Yeah. And of course, the writer-director-composer lineup is repeated soon in another all-time classic for me. And yes, I too prefer the classic Who Zygon costumes as well. And last but not least, from Chat Grande67, such a shame that Unit didn't go out in a blaze of glory and get wiped out instead of fading <laughs> away due to the lack of interest. And that, my friends, is the mail. Thank you, Julie. And as a reminder, we really do love hearing all of your feedback, comments, thoughts, and questions. And as you've just heard, we do try to read out as many of them as possible. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D or via email at Watchers4D at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, so please do drop us a note. As usual, we're going to head straight behind the scenes on the Android Invasion. We'll start with writer Terry Nation, who'd had an informal agreement with the Doctor Who production office since season 10 to contribute one Dalek serial per season. When it came to discussing his contribution for season 13, producer Philip Hinchcliffe and script editor Robert Holmes were not interested in reusing old monsters and instead wanted new foes for the Doctor. With that in mind, Nation developed two non-Dalek storylines, The Enemy Within and Return to Suknan. The latter of these was quickly abandoned, and I look forward to the inevitable Big Finish Lost Stories release. But at the end of February 1975, Nation was commissioned to write a full set of scripts for The Enemy Within, which was soon retitled to The Kraals. The narrative for the story was shaped by fears that the Soviet Union had built replicas of Western towns as training grounds for sleeper agents. When writing the story, Nation originally envisioned the Kraals as an insectoid race, although this was quickly changed during production. And let's be honest, that was probably for the best. What were they changed to? Good question. <laughs> also abandoned was a plot element where the androids were not exact copies of the people they were imitating, but rather were their mirror image. And this is how the Doctor was originally meant to deduce that Sarah was actually an android in part two. This element was abandoned as it was determined this would be too technically challenging to realize and the scripts were amended accordingly. Speaking of the scripts, Nation delivered them at the start of May 1975. By the end of the month, Hinchcliffe told Nation that the number of sets would have to be reduced due to budget constraints, along with the amount of material that could be recorded on film. Nation agreed that Holmes should be the one to make the changes. Holmes also found himself having to remove the role of Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart from the scripts, as Nicholas Courtney, aware that he was no longer guaranteed work on Doctor Who, had committed himself to a theatre tour and was unavailable to film. To replace him, Holmes brought in the character of Colonel Faraday, and it was during these rewrites that the serial gained its final name of the Android Invasion. To direct the serial, former Doctor Who producer Barry Letts was brought in, after leaving Doctor Who as producer, he had planned to go on to produce other shows. 
but the plans for all of these shows had apparently become caught up in some sort of internal BBC politics. With this going on, he instead secured an agreement to see out his contract with the BBC as a director, and that brought him back to Doctor Who. With location filming planned, Nation was unaware of what sort of structure the Doctor would be secured to when tied up in Part 3. He had initially assumed that whatever it would be would have been smaller than the war memorial that was ultimately used, and he had scripted it so that Sarah would simply slip the Doctor's bindings over the top of the structure. The use of the sonic screwdriver was a late amendment to the script to address the practicalities of the location filming, and so its use as a fix-all tool truly began. Due to filming running over, in terms of time, a number of scenes went ultimately unfilmed. These included a scene that would have explained how the Doctor reactivated and reprogrammed his android counterpart, along with accounting for the fate of the Kral invasion armada. Damn, that might have made things make a bit more sense. The finished episodes were broadcast between the 22nd of November and the 13th of December 1975. The final episode went out 10 minutes later than usual in order to accommodate a longer than usual episode of that wonderful sports show Grandstand, which was covering the FA Cup draw. After the final episode's broadcast, the show would go on a two-week hiatus over Christmas and New Year before returning in 1976 with the next serial, The Brain of Morbius. With that... We'll move on to the short summary, which is in the hands of Don this episode. Over to you, Don. The Doctor and Sarah Jane seemingly arrive back on Earth in a small village, where the residents arrive by truck every morning, and it's always the same day. But soon they are hunted by the numerous love children of Naton and the Stig. The residents, actually android clones, are tools of the Kral Stigron. Okay, I guess that Stig connection makes sense now with his name. Who created the village as a trading facility to use the androids to replace certain existing humans and then use them to spread a virus that will destroy all humans on Earth that his people are also susceptible to. If that seems slightly complicated, keep in mind that Sigurun also brainwashed an astronaut into thinking he had lost an eye, <laughs> presumably as part of his plan and not just to be a dick. <laughs> Guest starring Harry Benton and General Melchett from Wish.com as Colonel Faraday. Fantastic. All right, guys, let's go ahead and jump right in. Part one, and we start with the generic unit grunt twitching his way through the woodland before the TARDIS arrives. I like that opening. Oh, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> when he gets really going and he goes over the cliff, he reminded me a lot of his walk was very much like Vincent D'Onofrio's and Men in Black. <laughs> That, like in a human suit thing as he's oh like jerking around. It really was. That's a good call, Riley. So I guess what we're supposed to assume once we've seen later episodes is that this particular android was dysfunctional for some reason. Yeah. Okay. Because it's not quite clear, but it's a very cool scene, the good intro to the fact that things are really weird here. You assume either he's having some kind of seizure or there's something else wrong that's going on. Speaking of things that are kind of shoehorned in... The whole ginger pop thing. <laughs> so first off, we got ginger pop and ginger beer. And are we just talking about ginger ale? I think it's all meant to be ginger beer. Yeah, ginger beer is a okay. bit more intense than ginger ale. Still not alcoholic, but close enough. I actually liked that because it's setting something up that would have been really difficult to pay off when you're watching it serialized in the 70s. But I still like that he made the effort. That's the problem is by the time anyone's watching episode two a week later... They've forgotten about the whole ginger pop thing. I think what Julie may be talking about, it's how poorly set up it is at the beginning. It's like, you know me, I'm the doctor, can't get enough of this stuff, always drinking it, always have been drinking it. 
since I've been on the show, it kind of seems a little too much. Maybe they could have done it a little bit more elegance, maybe a throwaway line of, I'm really getting into this stuff now or something like that. But it made it seem like he's always been drinking it. There's also the other thing that's thrown in of, oh, hey, look, it's a maple tree. These only grow on Earth. How convenient. Or was it oak? Whichever one. Whichever one has acorns. <sighs> okay, fine. Yeah, it does feel like some of the elements of the setup are hammered home just a little too hard. And also, who wants to drink it? It's like room temperature in his pocket, and he's constantly opening it and closing it. It must be flat. But regardless of that, there are some things I think this episode does really well. That empty village, really cool. The men in white suits, really cool. With finger guns? With finger yeah, guns. are awesome. <laughs> Man, the crawl are going to get sued by the Autons. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was very Auton-esque. It's kind of like a spacesuit, so it did kind of remind me of Ambassadors of Death a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got that vibe in certain places as well. Like later on when you see Crayford's, Crayford's? his name crayford yeah yeah that when you right. see his spacesuit that looked like that was straight out of the ambassadors of death it probably was <laughs> interestingly the doctor's theory is there's some kind of radioactivity and that was kind of evocative i'm gonna get my history on for a second here there had been a minor minor nuclear disaster in england in the 50s called windscale and there was a lot of footage of men in white coveralls doing the cleanup and they kind of looked eerily reminiscent of that. I thought that was pretty cool. You know what I did appreciate in this? What did you appreciate, Julie? The reference to the fact that Sarah Jane was a journalist. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, we finally get back to what her profession is. It's like, oh, yes. To be fair, we had that in Pyramids of Mars as well. There was a line about her being a journalist from 1980. And it's how they use it as well, because this yes. is probably the First time I can think of where Sir Jane is explaining to the doctor she's the person who has a source of knowledge about where they are because she's been there before. That was yeah. a nice yes. new twist. Yeah, that was actually using her well for a change. Yeah. I think we should discuss Crayford a little bit more. He's kind of as a character in a difficult position in this script. And I don't mean as in like him and his personal conflict. I'm just saying for the function of the script moving forward. Because at some point you could argue that he isn't necessarily needed at all. Because it could just be a story of the Doctor and Sarah finding this village, trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. They discover androids in the background manipulating things are the crawls. But then Crayford's here and he's just this weird middleman character that seems really awkward. Anyone else think that? The only reason why he's there is to get the virus onto Earth. And it just, there's so many other ways they could have done it other than just using him. And they didn't utilize his character to a degree that they could have and should have. Of course, I'm no biological warfare specialist here, but couldn't they just bomb the planet with this virus? I don't understand why it needs to be brought in via the androids. Or just give it to Crayford. Right. Just before he lands, I mean, he's going to interact with people and they didn't have that many androids to spread it. Mm -mm. Yeah, so just buddy up with him and yeah. say, we're sending you back and then infect him as they're sending him. And if they could just infect areas of England that don't believe in quarantines or rules <laughs> about protecting public health, then they would have been fine. So I don't know where I got that from. That's totally off the top of my head. Not indicative of recent events. Can we talk about the fact that we get four or five women on screen? What? 
Well, they were androids, though. They were androids. Doesn't count. They don't say anything. <laughs> Not until later on where we get a woman with a speaking role. And I don't even mean Sarah Jane's duplicate. Yeah, but we'll get to that when we get to that, because I also have some opinions about that as well. <laughs> that would have been a great comment. You don't have enough women in this. I gave you two Sarah Janes. Come on. I gave you two women. What are you complaining about? Yeah. <laughs> Overall, though, I like the setup. It's a bit silly, but this episode has some wonderful creepiness. When they go into the pub, there's comments about, we don't have strangers here. And Don, you'll appreciate this. Yes, All I, I could think of was, you're going. this is a local pub for local people. You have no business here. <laughs> I actually think some of the acting by the extras were really good because when they all walk into the pub and they're just sitting there, it is very unnerving. And then they just go straight into just acting like normal people. And I gotta say, I gotta give them props. And the Avengers had done an episode of sleeper agents being trained in a replica English town. And it's kind of reminiscent of that. Its eeriness at times reminded me of The Prisoner as well. Like mm, this episode yes. just sets this up in a really kind of creepy way. And then we're kind of teased with Lethbridge Stewart, but we never actually see him. Because he's in Geneva. He's in Geneva. <laughs> More peace conferences. You know, Anthony, you're right about the prisoner because what's so reminiscent of that is here you have this kind of testing of a person, a real person in a controlled location where you're not really certain who's real and who's not real. And above it all is this one kind of mastermind looking down and just toying and playing with that person. That's very much from that show. Exactly definitely some parallels and then the avengers connection and we'll obviously get colonel faraday later on but just while i'm thinking of it the actor who played colonel faraday played a character called mother in the final season of the avengers who was kind of like the head of the intelligence department or whatever the steed and tara king belonged to so pretty cool little connection there towards the end we got the doctor running and there is a giant alarm thing that's going on in which rumble was concerned <laughs> obviously <laughs> obviously and sarah jane goes to free the doctor right and we see a face of something that honestly when i first saw it i was like is that a centauran yeah <laughs> i thought the exact yeah. same thing it's what happens when you take a centauran and you put it out in the sun like a raisin i thought if you left a centauran in the microwave for too long <laughs> that's yes. where i was going yeah <laughs> very very shriveled it was a nice touch, nice creepy little look. You get a quarter of it, you don't get to see all of it, mm -hmm. which is a shame because I'm not impressed with the whole <laughs> design. It looks like just a, well, Don alluded to it with the taking a centaur and putting it in the microwave. It just kind of has this texture and look of like cheese that's been microwaved too long. It doesn't look finished. It looks mm -hmm. like, okay, we've got a basic paper mache shape. Oh, we got a film now? I haven't painted. Okay, here you go. I mean, it's very <laughs> incomplete looking. And then when we actually see more of it later, to your point, Don, the mouth doesn't really move. It doesn't look particularly mm -hmm. convincing, even by Doctor Who standards. It begs the question, is a pile of glop an actual design or is it just a pile of glop? <laughs> I'm sensing a, a theme here for you, Riley, and Terry Nation stories. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, don't worry. We do have our gross out moment a little bit later. To be fair, the look has nothing to do with Terry Nation. And hey, there's no slave labor in this. There's no hoopties. There is radiation. There is viral warfare. Well, it's Terry Nation. You know, you've got yeah. to let him do something. <laughs> there are some of the Terry tropes in this. But I do wonder, after X number of Dalek serials, he hasn't written a non-Dalek story since the keys of fucking Marinus back in season wow. one. 
I'm wondering how many kids would have seen his name in the opening sequence and been like, oh, are we getting Daleks? Mm-hmm. Prepare to be disappointed, kiddo. Just a couple dorks. <laughs> no one else really. So part two? <laughs> part two. So recap is a minute and 27 seconds long. Why? It was so long. We've seen worse. We've seen worse. <laughs> I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> Come on, it's a Terry Nation script. It's not going to be full. There's <laughs> also, wait, who directed this? Barry Letts? Barry Sorry. Letts. So we had a lot of those back in that era, didn't we? Just we saying. did. We'll talk about some of the, the Barry tropes later. One thing I noticed is that for some reason, for a couple of sequences, it was really obsessed with getting the boots and following the boots of the crawls. And I'm like, what is so special about these boots? There's nothing special about them. It's not their faces. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine if they tried to make them insectoids? Think about the Wirren. We didn't see much of them moving. And that was good. <laughs> that helped them actually be kind of effective. Can you imagine if they had tried to do like a full-on story with an insectoid race in 1975? It would have looked shit. <laughs> I think they might have been just better off using the Stig androids, that's what I'm going to call them, as the main bad guys, calling them the crawl, and then just having, what's his face, Patch guy, as being mm-hmm. the one to translate their wants in some way. Because yeah. the crawl were just kind of lame. Very lame. Yes. Yeah, is it this episode where we start getting the bickering between Stigron uh, and what's the name of the other one? Because I really didn't care that much. Shorty. Just call him Shorty. <laughs> Shadaki. That was it. Their scenes of their bickering was as bad as endearing as seeing like old people getting into an <laughs> argument at a bakery. That's what it felt like. That was the stakes. That was the intensity. It was just kind of, oh, God. It kind of reminded me of the bickering from the Dominators. And dear God, I remember the oh Dominators. Oh. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, you're right, Julie. And for better or for worse, I remember that. No bueno. Yeah. Can I talk about something that I was really not okay with? Benton? Sure. Benton. Benton. It's Benton. Cool. <laughs> Julie, I feel like I need to rip the Band-Aid oh, off now. Oh, I know. It's so bad. This is how we decide to let him go. I mean, at least at the end, we get good Benton. So it's not just bad Benton, but oh, geez. Isn't it also the last time we see Harry? It is. I almost said that without laughing, but I failed (laughs) and I apologize. They need to write off these people better. Benton makes a cameo later. He does get one more appearance. It's fine. Everything is fine. One thing I was excited about was the fact that they weren't locked in a cell the entire time. (laughs) very little there's very little cell time in this (laughs) wonderful thank you so much terry nation part of my problem with the serial as a whole is that it just felt like it's sarah jane and the doctor constantly running going to a new hiding space and then repeat over and over again they're just constantly on the run and one could argue they're kind of already in a prison cell the cell of being in the village as a whole Ooh, much like the prisoner yeah yes very much That didn't bother me because it does seem like every time they're finding out a little bit more, they're progressing. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, hey, we're stuck at the same thing and here's yet another prison cell. And what's helped is that Sarah Jane isn't the damsel in distress. Right. Things happen to her, sprained her ankle or whatever. She becomes the damsel in the tree. (laughs) (laughs) But we get the smart move of the doctor in jumping into the pond, which was wonderful. I loved that. But then Sarah Jane was stupid. And came out of the tree too early. If I recall correctly, Tom Baker got kind of sick from that scene. He got very sick. He ingested a bunch of the water. 
Oh, yeah, you did. Gross. Oh, that seems like it's a him problem. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Damn. I'm just saying, just don't swallow pond water. That seems so obvious. Yes, but, you know, sometimes <laughs> sometimes those things can't be avoided on set, Julie. Uh-huh. Anyway, you see my thoughts there. I hope that I'm never left with you caring for me. <laughs> That's an Anthony problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing I did find interesting, so this really did still seem very Centauran to me because it's an experiment on a different species so that they can conquer yeah. said planet. <laughs> so it was just like you could have just had the Centaurans come back. Yeah. Isn't it more of a test than an experiment? They're trying to make yeah. sure their androids are convincing enough. Well, the first problem with their androids is their damn faces keep falling off. That, okay, okay, that is a problem. <laughs> Fix that. Every android in the 1970s, every single one. I think it actually might happen on Space 1999 at some point. I haven't got there yet. I know it happens in um, the Six Million Dollar Man. If you were an android in the 1970s, your face was coming off. Just accept it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That, and they need to fix the hostility circuits. <laughs> yes. Oh. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> we know why we didn't have the Sontarans. They didn't want to have any returning monsters, which mm, I think... Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't disagree with that, That Julie. sounds like a Doctor Who problem. <laughs> <laughs> it does have that feel of that meme of... We want the Suntarans. We got the Suntarans at home. Picture <laughs> the of Suntarans at home. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> oh, man. Riley, you're in charge of making that meme. We get to the scene with the doctor in the pub. Yay. Where we get the payoff of the whole ginger beer thing. Sure. I think the payoff comes later. But yeah, with Sarah the, Jane. In the, in the pub, there's some good stuff. There's the dartboard that's never been used. Yep. And the calendar with only one date, which is what the past couple of years have felt like. <laughs> the mysteriously working telephone. There's a lot of really good stuff in these scenes. Also, most of the scenes with the doctor giving banter between him and Sarah Jane are really well done. They are. You can actually tell there's a rapport between Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen. I think I mentioned it not too long ago about how their chemistry is now really kicking off. Yes. Yeah. The thing that always cracks me up with this is Tom Baker was quite well known for the amount he drank. And I'm kind of left wondering, all right, so was the pub, when he said, let's go into the pub in episode one, was that the doctor speaking or was that Tom Baker speaking? <laughs> yes. Yes. We do have our payoff of the ginger beer and the doctor sussing out almost immediately that Sarah is an android. Well, yeah. She did a great job of acting as the android. I really like the little differences there. I think Liz Slayton, in general, is a very, very good actor. Yes. It's one of those things that I took note, again, in this one. There's a lot of issues with this whole serial, but the acting across the board is pretty good between both the two mains and the extras minus the crawls. But the crawls aren't bad. They're just not good. Before we get into part three, I also want to give a shout out to Tom Baker just clearly having a blast. Like the whole thing with the phone. <laughs> when he was like, hey, this phone's not working. Would you believe it? It's out of order. <laughs> he picks it up, has the conversation, and then puts it back down, picks it up again as to try and listen to it, you know, figure out whether it's making the dial tone. And she says, would you believe it? It's out of order again. He is enjoying that line so much. And I just adore it. 
he's having the best time being the Doctor. That actually reminds me of my favorite line here, which is somewhere in part three, so we'll get to that in a minute. Part three, I actually really, really like those android faces, and we ended part two with the Doctor confronting fake Sarah, she falls over and her face falls off, which is kind of traumatic. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> yeah, me too. But I think they look kind of cool. Yeah, oh, I think they look great. They really do. Mm -hmm. I really like the look of that. Out of all the design that we had in the entire serial, the androids themselves, their inner workings look fantastic. That's definitely a design win. And seeing it shoot at people with its face off is also creepy as hell. This is where we start hearing about the virus. Also, Don and Riley. I know you guys will appreciate this. When we first see Android Harry and Android Benton together, all I could think of was Evil Harry and Evil Benton. <laughs> I don't know, but for some reason, Community just came into my head with that. <laughs> this whole serial, when we get to these last two episodes where we're constantly playing the game of, are they an android or are they not an android? Is this the real person or is this not the real? You know, da, 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 da. It was getting a little too much for me in... I thought it was getting a bit ridiculous that it reminded me of the community episode about conspiracies, where each person yes. was revealing another conspiracy within another conspiracy over and over again. It just kind of got to that point with me on this, where it's like, okay, you have it once. You have the, is this the real person or is this an android? But when it keeps going over and over again, it's too much. I don't think it went that far. I don't think it did either. They usually did a pretty good job acting wise so that you pretty quickly knew if they were an android or not. So. I do love that episode of Community, though. Just yeah. shout out for that. What's wrong with that? It's right here, right in the middle of the village, we get what I think is a reference when Stigron, whose name I can never get right, has tied the doctor up. They've got the bomb at his feet. And then the doctor's like, we can all go together. That has to be a reference to Tom Lair, who has a song called We'll All Go Together, when we go, which is about everyone dying at the same time in a nuclear holocaust. Uh, it's also referenced much later on in Doctor Who again. It is? Yeah. When? I think it's the Matt Smith era, but I could okay. be wrong. But it's right. it's definitely in, in the later half. I was cool. very sad that we got a warbling increases, but not <laughs> intensifies. <laughs> it's been a while since we've had an intensifies. I know. I've been looking. We're just not getting it. I don't know how I feel about some of that weird slow motion stuff that was going on. Was that when they were running into? Yes. When they okay, were running yeah, that's, into. That's where they uh, they also do a non-Pertwee Gurn. Yes. I did like, however, the special effects of the bomb with that going off and then it vaporizing, I guess, everything or whatever yeah. thing it was doing. I didn't mind that. It was just the slow motion just was either lasted too long or something. I don't know. I want to talk about Stigron's base or whatever it, whatever it is. The, For a minute, I thought the... you said you want to talk about Stigron's face. I'm like, no, let's <laughs> no. not, please. <laughs> no, the crawl base, because good God, it looks shit. <laughs> it looks like spray painted styrofoam. And when I think about some of the design wins that we've had this season, like the Zygon tech oh. or that jungle in Planet of Evil, which, let's be honest, is one of that story's few saving graces, <laughs> Stigron's lair looks truly fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that the production team is capable of so much more. Was this the cheap one? 
No, this isn't even the cheap one. That's the next one. <laughs> oh, good. Spoilers. <laughs> Maybe this is why the crawls need a new planet. All their stuff <laughs> look, just looks terrible. <laughs> we need a new planet because that one looks shit. Yes. <laughs> I'm still not quite sure, aside from giving us an exciting escape scene, why they needed to blow up their little training village. Yeah. To give us an exciting oh, escape gonna scene. Who's going to find it? <laughs> Is it really necessary? I don't know. It also gave us the use of the Sonic that I referenced earlier, which is yeah. the beginning of me being driven fucking insane by it being waved around like a magic wand in the new season. It's why I am like that as well. One thing I did like is the bad Harry comes around and then the doctor says, I prefer our Harry. And I was like, well, I guess I'll agree with you, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I also made a comment at this point of, we better get the real versions or I'm going to riot. <laughs> I'm glad we never have to find out what a Julie riot looks like. So we find out a part of their plan and promises to Crayford is that they're not going to kill any humans. And how is he so dumb as to believe that? He's brainwashed. It's uh, just a moron. I, yeah, but he's a brainwashed moron. <laughs> he is. I have more on this later, but that's why he'll believe anything they tell him. <laughs> and his whole worldview comes to an end when he realizes what they've been doing. They, to him. they also told him, no, really, you look cool in an eye patch. And he <laughs> believed them. All right. Can we just. I, I know that that's not till like part four. Then wait till part four. Wait, you got to okay. hold on to it. That's important. Okay. We also get them trying to give the virus to Sarah Jane to test it out. These creatures have no understanding of viral safety. They've really? just got it out. They're tossing it around. I mean, what happens to Stigaron, once again in part four, completely brought upon himself, dude. Use some gloves. Use some goggles. This is how lab leaks happen. Yes. But we do get Sarah Jane getting to be a badass. Yes. And this is like the highlight of the story for me was Sarah Jane being like, all right, the doctor got taken away, so I'm going to electrocute some people. Wonderful. So good. I've missed that kind of thing. Right. Yes, we've missed electrocutions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was more thinking badass female companions. Okay. But sure, electrocutions too. <laughs> Why not, Julie? Let's do it. It's fine, I'm in a mood. I can tell. Anything else for this one? Well, we have the doctor being scanned and Sarah Jane rescuing him and accidentally making it worse for a moment. I love the line after that. I feel disorientated. Well, this is the disorientation, disorientation setup. Yes. That makes sense. <laughs> Tom Baker's comic timing really is shining through here. That is one of my favorite things about this story. He's very good. Like I said, most of their lines, the interaction between him and Sarah Jane, just that little disorientation chamber. It's really good. It's really amusing. Yeah. We end the episode with the Doctor and Sarah stowing away on Crayford's rocket that's heading to Earth with the virus. And there's the G-force of takeoff that Sarah feels like she's being crushed by. Part four. Let's go. Sarah's not crushed. She is mildly inconvenienced by the G-forces. <laughs> yes. So dramatic. But we do get a little peek at our android doctor. Yeah, it's convenient that they finally decided to make an android version of him. Right. All right, guys. I was going to be excited by the fact that we have a woman with a speaking role. Yes. Plus one to the Philip Hinchcliffe women count. She says a whopping 45 words in this 
entire cereal. I would say that's 45 times as much as any other woman we've got, but you can't really do 45 by zero. Yeah, it's technically an infinite right? amount more than any other woman we've seen since Terror of the Zygons, I will have you know. And we know that she likes coffee. Yes. We've learned so much about this one woman compared to any others we've seen. Oh, guys. Do you see why I am so disappointed in this era? Because I'm so disappointed. At uh, times we've had the, we're not going to perform well against the Bechdel test. Here it's a, why do we even need women at all? <laughs> oh, man. And people wonder why a lot of women don't watch old classic Doctor Who. Well, I can honestly say this is part of the reason. I just remember how happy you were, Julie, way back at the beginning when we did Marco Polo. <gasps> And Susan and Ping Cho have that long conversation, and you were so excited that it passed the Bechdel test. That was 1963 versus this. <laughs> oh, uh, was in... that when we recorded it? Was it 1963? That's, that's how long ago it feels <laughs> like. <laughs> but yes. Oh, it's so sad. Yes, Anthony, I understand. Okay, but it is nice to see the real Harry and the real Benton. <gasps> yes. Oh, and Benton still putting his hat in the little shoulder thingy like he always does. I love it. Yeah, when I was in the Air Cadets, I used to do that with my beret, totally inspired by Benton. The, the Air Cadets? Yeah, the British equivalent of the JROTC. Ah, okay. All right. So it has no relationship to the Senior Defense Astronaut Crayford, no. right? Which is such no. an odd title, Senior Defense Astronaut. I want yeah. to know who the Senior Offense Astronaut yes, is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if it's not one of the guys from the Ambassadors of Death, I will riot. <laughs> One question I had on this, and it's a little later. Well, there are several things, but I want to touch on a Barry Letts direction choice. So on the scaffold up to the spaceship, makes sense that would be CSO, right? The BBC doesn't have the budget to do that. There's a scene in the spaceship where it looked like Crayford and Stigron are CSO'd into the interior of the spaceship, which we know they've built because there are other scenes where it's clearly not CSO. Why, Barry? Why? <laughs> Look, Barry has a problem. He needed to go to rehab for it, but no one would tell him. It's more sad than anything. <laughs> Barry and his CSO obsession. At least it worked with a radar dish, which is how I knew that was going to be a plot point later on, because I think it's in the first episode you see it and you see the, the radar dish that's obviously been kind of plastered on to the building. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's going to be important later. Well, and that's the thing. There are some scenes where it makes sense to use CSO. And I remember we complained about this in The Mind of Evil. There are others where it's like, well, I guess we forgot to maybe film this scene, so we'll just do it in the studio <laughs> with the CSO background. Uh, <sighs> All right. Fine. So they land on Earth, and then Sarah Jane and the bad doctor have landed, and she's right there at the TARDIS, she had opened the door, and yet she wasn't smart enough to grab the key. I know it doesn't actually become a plot point, but like... It was a plot point earlier on, because she left the key mm -hmm. in it, yeah. and it went, hey, we're supposed to be on Earth, <laughs> and took off. Why? So I'm like, why didn't she grab the key this time? The TARDIS could have disappeared again. Because reasons. Yes, reasons. Very good reasons, I'm told. <laughs> I did really like the android Sarah sitting in the little crate thing and like beckoning the fake doctor over to get her out. Oh my God, that was wonderful. 
Oh, yeah. They got all horror movie creepy there. It was nice. <laughs> Again, acting. Excellent. Execution of other things. Not so much. I know this is slightly out of sequence, but I want to address the elephant in the room. Crayford and the eye patch. Oh, boy. <laughs> all right. I have a shocking twist here. As I said, and I texted you guys, I laughed so hard at this supposedly dramatic reveal <laughs> because it was so funny. And then my stupid brain decided to figure out a way to justify it. Oh, Ooh, I must hear this. We pointed out that Crayford is he's not really stupid. He's just been completely brainwashed. I think Stigron wanted to see how deep that brainwashing would go. If he could convince him that he was missing one of his eyes, that anything else he told him, he would have to believe. Because I don't think he went for two months without washing under the patch. He could physically <laughs> see that he had an eye, but he was so deeply brainwashed, he couldn't believe it. He just passed over it like the somebody else's problem field in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I think that's literally the only way you can make that that's work. That's the mm -hmm. only way I can justify it. Other than that, dude's got really bad washing habits. Really bad. Really bad. And how does it just not like accidentally get knocked loose a little bit and he's just like, oh, wait, can I see a little bit out of here? What's going on? No. And that was my question is, did he just not wash? Did he never lift it up? Did, did he just not notice? Oh, I have a functioning eye. I just think he wasn't allowed to believe it. Which, as I said, I think that's the only way that works. I really like the sequence where the doctor throws himself out of window. <laughs> which... Yes is magnificent in itself. <laughs> it's so bizarre. And was it at this point where we got the whole, oh, hey, we have to watch out for the doctor. He's on the base. And then he just like walks in. Oh, yeah. And they yes. did that, that oh, same thing twice. That uh, was great. I loved that whole sequence. It was wonderful. And that's why, again, acting superb. Wonderful. I love them. Julie, you stole my opportunity to use one of my favorite words. The doctor defenestrates himself. <laughs> Love that word. That word just never comes up in conversation enough. Really <laughs> it doesn't. Oh, boy. But I did love that. We need to talk about the Doctor versus Doctor fight. I thought that was quite well shot. One of them is clearly wearing a wig, and it's either Stuart Fell or Terry Walsh. Could be either. Not sure which. But they'll enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fun. As the real Doctor is really just trying to press a button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that button just freezes Andrew. Yes. Sure, why not? Yeah. There are worse plot points in uh, yes. this and many other oh, stories. Which brings me to my next question. What happened to the rest of the invasion attempt? Well, we know there was meant to be a resolution to that. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Are you asking what happened to the rest of the invasion? Like the yeah. crawl ships? A horrible accident with the Santaran armada at the same time. <laughs> They're coming in, huge accident in front of Earth. Big pileup, really terrible, a lot of loss of life there. Mm -hmm. Very tragic. Yes. And then this ending, it's so stupid. Wait, it's wait, so wait, before we get to the ending, we need to talk about Faraday, don't we, a little bit? Oh, I guess we should. My first thought was when we saw the back of him, geez, the Brig has gained weight. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cheap version of the Brigadier. Oh, yeah, I had almost forgotten about him, aside from my Melchit comments. I'm like, okay. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, it's like he's got a mustache. He wears a very similar uniform. Most people are not going to be eagle-eyed enough to spot the difference in rank. And the really, really casual viewer will probably just see an upper-class guy with a mustache and assume it's the same character. Uh... So basically what you're saying <laughs> on the SAT is that Suntarans are to crawls as the Brigadier is to Faraday. 
Yeah, I was about to make the exact same joke about the brigadier we have at home. Yes. Uh. So, yes. <laughs> I'm just very sad right now. All right, is that all we have? Uh, <laughs> you were wanting to complain about the ending. So they're going to the TARDIS and Sarah Jane is talking about getting a cab or something. And then the doctor's like, how about this? How about I take you home? I'm like, you, you can't do that because you're awful <laughs> at flying the TARDIS. Like, yeah. This always ends poorly. This was so dumb. I think she knows what's up. She knows yeah. what's going to yeah, happen. She knows. She's just accepted it. And Julie, I'm surprised that you didn't express outrage at the last sighting of the real Benton for quite a long time. <laughs> oh, the Being him out? getting knocked unconscious. I mean, yeah. that's... A common Benton trope is he gets knocked out a lot. He does spend an awful lot of time unconscious in these serials. It's fine. I know. Uh, at least we do have one more Benton appearance to wait for. It's going to be a while though, Julie, again, just to manage expectations. It's fine. The Julie catchphrase of late. <laughs> yes. Everything is fine. All right. So we know where this is going. Let's go ahead and rate this one. I actually, before we get into that, do want to give this some camp count points because it is ridiculous at times, particularly with Stigron and Chidaki's endless fucking bickering. I think that deserves a point for just being over the top and unnecessary. I think Crayford is over the top and unnecessary, but... All right, two points, two points on the camp count. <laughs> and with that, we will go ahead and rate this. And this time round, we start... Oh, God, I go first this time. <laughs> There is an order to this, believe it or not, so I don't just pull this out of my ass every episode. I don't believe you. I think this is Ainley generated. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate this. It is kind of silly. It is, in places, poorly made. Thank you, Barry Letts. But, I don't know, there's something just kind of endearing about it. So, it is nice to get Benton and Harry back. It is kind of fun to see the androids and to have duplicates of Sarah and the Doctor and to not quite know who you can trust. Design, eh. CSO, there. I'm just going to express my displeasure for parts of this in various noises. <laughs> As I said, it's enjoyable. It's certainly not dull. It's not great Doctor Who, but it's not terrible Doctor Who either. So I think I'm going to give this six local pubs for local people <laughs> out of ten. Nice. Don, you're up next. Oh, I think we're very, very close to being on the same page. There's some issues. There's some stuff that's not quite as realized as well as it could be. However, I was never bored. And a lot of the stuff they did, like rendering the village and just little things to bring you into the mystery, I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, there's some stuff that doesn't quite work, but it's also a children's show from the 1970s. So really, what do you want? Based on the fact that I enjoyed it. I'm giving this seven bottles of pocket ginger ale out of 10. It's lukewarm and it probably has some jelly babies in it, but <laughs> tasty. Julie. It's not good. It's not bad. It just kind of exists. I kind of <laughs> made a comment that this is going to be a forgettable story for me. It's not going to be one that I think about years down the road. Sorry, everyone. Hope that doesn't offend you. There's a lot of issues. A lot of the design choices were poor. Some of the plot is not so great, but the acting is superb. And there are certain times when there is really good atmosphere. Oh, that's tough, man. I'm going to give it five and a half fake Bentons out of 10. Would you like to go for bogus Bentons so we get some alliteration in there? 
And last but not least, Riley. Out of all the classic Doctor Who serials, this is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> this was perfectly down the line mediocre. And being a little bit under the weather, that kind of makes it a bit disappointing to me. So I'm a bit more negative on it than I probably should be if I was viewing it in a better condition, in a better state. Like I said, it splits right down the middle. There's some good things. There's some bad things. It is mercifully short. It just doesn't seem that original to me. So that doesn't get any points for me from that. The chemistry is great. Between the Doctor and Sarah Jane, I'm really happy with that. That could have made this a slog. If this was a six-parter or a five-parter, this would be getting a lower score for certain. Crayford's ridiculous. The design of the crawls are, is just mailed in. But has its moments. The Doctor in the pub is good. Sarah Jane doing her thing and being active is great. It's new. So it just goes right down the middle for me. So why not go right down the middle with the score? Five. Pew, pew, pew. Finger guns out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> and that gets this story an average between the four of us of 5.88, which makes it the second lowest of the season so far. It is, of course, ahead of Planet of Evil. <laughs> <laughs> I did realize at the beginning I forgot to say who the rest of the production crew beyond Barry Letts are. I'm not going to do that now, so go look it up yourselves if you want to know. With that, we're at the end of the episode. Next time round, we'll be tackling another classic horror mashup in the brain of Morbius. But in the meantime, as always, thank you so much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, That Sounds Like a Doctor Who Problem, was recorded on Wednesday the 28th of December 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at watchers4d, and you can also email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, we have Sontarans at home. <laughs>